You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Mark A. Cruz, GDS. Uh, we're talking about the inspiratory flow limitation, its effect on sleep and breathing and wellness. So uh, we'll get into the details of that, but Mark, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so what is uh, IFL? Let's, let's begin with that. So, you know, it's a term that stands for inspiratory flow limitation used in um, pulmonology and sleep medicine more often refers to upper airway resistance syndrome, which is its own nosologic definition within the sleep disorders uh, breathing spectrum. So a lot of people think of obstructive sleep apnea syndrome as breathing or sleeping problems. Uh, and yet it's right. really to the end stage diagnosis of a whole spectrum that has a number of different conditions or nosologies. Yeah, I've heard that um, apnea is defined as, you know, stopping breathing for 10 seconds or more a certain number of times in an hour. I guess a certain number of times in a in a sleep cycle as well or, you know, a sleep period. Or, you know, do you have a more formal definition of apnea or is that close enough? Actually, the definition of an apnea is, is uh, stopping your breathing for 10 seconds or more accompanied with a, a drop in oxygen saturation of greater than four percentage points. Uh, the number of huh. times that it happens per hour is what gives you the uh, the index. Or the hypopnea index? Uh, no, the apnea hypopnea index. So the apnea hypopnea index includes apneas and hypopneas. A hypopnea is another major event, and there are a number of different definitions, but one of the more common ones is a, uh, is a drop in uh, airflow, 30 to 50% uh, for 10 seconds or, or more again a company with a, uh, a drop in oxygen saturation greater than 4%. So you have apneas and hypopnea. The number of those that are counted within an hour gives you the apnea hypopnea index. The respiratory disturbance index is the apnea hypopnea index plus the smaller events called RERAs or respiratory effort related arousals. So that's yeah. defined as a drop in oxygen saturation uh, between 2 and 4%. Yeah, I've observed that, um, and, you know, we've seen it in movies and, you know, I've seen it with, you know, my parents and all that. They go, <sighs> you know, they, they kind of snore and they seem to wake up 
partially and then go back to sleep. You know, in the movies, they'll do that. Like, let's say they're trying to take someone's keys without them waking up and they go, and they'll move and, you know, murmur or something like that. Is that an arousal or an example of one? Well, that certainly is an arousal. Whether you would define it as a rera uh, is another case because rearers are typically, uh, you have an EG that is uh that that you could see uh beyond just the actigraphy you know uh the movement if you will um if you're using high resolution pulse oximetry you have an algorithm that will define uh a rare effort related arousal that uh doesn't have an eeg associated with it but it's associated with the change in the heart rate if you will that you could pick up on the uh, pulse oximeter so um, but yeah it's an arousal and you know, inspiratory flow limitation can cause an arousal. And, and why it's important is that obstructive sleep apnea syndrome is really the tip of the iceberg, if you will, of the sleep disorders. And people are now starting to recognize the much more common form of it uh, in, in the form of upper airway resistance syndrome that can happen to a teenager, uh, a young, healthy female uh, in, in large numbers. And yet, it's not too much recognized by the third-party payer, and that's part of the problem. And so seeking care for it, you know, uh, from or benefit from, from your medical insurance for it is a little bit of the fly in the ointment, if you will. Let's say, you know, I, I wake up every day tired and you know, I have all these symptoms and I go, to, you know, my doctor sends me to do a sleep study. And for some reason, you know, I had like 29-second apneas or something. Nothing was 10 seconds or longer. Uh, for instance, would they just say, oh, you're fine, have a nice day, and insurance wouldn't pay for anything? Right. That That's just one example. Uh, it, it could be an OD4 event that's defined as an event greater than 3%, uh, 3 seconds less than 10, um, and those are very, very common, and they would never be scored. So you can have somebody that ends up having a respiratory disturbance index of 2 or 0 that is very fragmented in sleep. And, and they're rather symptomatic and sick. They have what's called the functional somatic syndromes, TMD, muscle aches, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, anxiety, depression, uh, yada, yada, yada. So all those symptoms. And, and so I would not send them for a sleep study. That's why I screened them with high-resolution pulse oximetry. I learned many years ago that if I send them to a sleep study, it makes the problem even worse because now they have a physician that said you don't have a sleep problem when they're thinking of a sleep problem being obstructive sleep apnea. They may be true in that regard, but they do have a sleep problem, a sleep breathing problem. And I'll be more specific and say they have a breathing problem that's resulting in fragmented sleep. And why that's important is that we now know there's studies that show there's causation for serious conditions such as cancers, <clears throat> metabolic dysregulation, cardiovascular re remodeling, even if you don't have obstructive sleep apnea. And with children, it's especially critical because just having sleep fragmentation for whatever reason is enough to cause inflammation in the brain and increases in inflammatory markers like uh, IL-6 and alpha necrosin factor and specific uh, C-reactive protein that uh, really has adverse effects on, on children from failure to thrive to cognitive problems, anxiety, uh, ADD, ADHD, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some serious conditions oh. just with sleep fragmentation. So when you, all right, let's, let's define a little bit more. So uh, sleep fragmentation, one example could be, you know, the, 
the adult or the, the child doesn't sleep through the whole night. They'll, they'll wake up one, two, three, four, five, ten times, even if it's only for a few seconds and go back to sleep. No. The sleep fragmentation would be oh. they sleep all night, but they don't necessarily have to even wake up. They just have, they're just oh. pulled out prematurely from N3 sleep or REM sleep. And why that's important, and there are recent studies uh, that just came out even a few months ago from Europe, their uh, pediatric journal showing that um, you can have failure to thrive when you have that. So what would be the reason? And that's, let's say, for mouth breathing, it's because um, the hypothalamus releases the metabolic hormones and growth hormones during N3 sleep in short periods of time. So if every time you go into that deeper sleep, which is when the airway is more vulnerable to collapse, just the mere threat to collapse from the autonomic nervous system in the brainstem is enough to pull you out of that sleep into a shallower sleep. So you may never wake up, but you just don't get that full, healthy sleep architecture. You sleep for 10 hours, you wake up very tired and fatigued. Uh, and it could happen uh, 30 times in an hour. So how do you evaluate someone that has this problem when they won't even know it? I guess someone like this would present to you and say, you know, hey, doc, I sleep 10 hours a night, but I still wake up and I feel like I haven't slept. And then, what, you know, if they yeah. say something like that, for instance, what would you do? Yeah, I, I, I see those patients every day. In fact, uh, they come in from all over the country and they've been previously, quote unquote, diagnosed or ruled out for Lyme disease or mold. They know they have fatigue. And no one could figure it out. They, their primary care physician, these specialists, and, and they're still tired. No one could figure it out. But no one's asking about sleep quality, let alone quantity, but sleep quality. And so the way we look at it is we do a very specific uh, airway examination, looking at nine different areas within uh, assessment like uh, Shervin's uh, pediatric sleep questionnaire as an example. And then we do, so that's qualitative. And then we get quantitative data with uh, let's say, the, a high-resolution pulse oximeter. So we can actually see quantitatively what's happening, not so much looking at the apnea-hypopnea index or the respiratory disturbance index, but looking at the cardiovascular modulation as it presents with uh, the heart rate. So you see these uh, heart rates that are 50 to 60 beats per minute, but then throughout the night, they're getting these huge spikes up to 110, 120 beats per minute that wow. comes down immediately. Uh, yeah, and that's hmm. happening all night long. Right. Yeah, I guess that cycling of the heart rate causes stress on um, you know their whole body amidst other things. I wouldn't call it cycling because that's a very specific term, but it's uh, okay. heart rate variability. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. All right, so you, you'll run these tests on the person, and then, you know, what kinds of things do you find that are uh, addressable? What can you do? What kinds of things are common that people like this have? What kind of problems with their airway, or what can you do about it? So what we look at is, you know, once we do a, a thorough assessment looking at structure, function, and behavior, um, we have an algorithm that we teach that basically uh, says the first thing we need to do is unfragment sleep. So to prove our quote-unquote hypothesis is if we can unfragment the sleep, then we've shown that it's related to their breathing and sleep. So, for example, a kid that's wetting the bed all the time um, and getting up with night terrors and they snore, or an adult that has similar symptoms, they have nocturia, um, they have daytime fatigue versus sleepiness, two different things. Um, if we can go ahead and use either a trial oral appliance or a trial CPAP, and then check them two weeks later, redo the um, high-resolution pulse oximetry after we titrate either of those two approaches, 
and then look at their changes in the clinical signs where let's say their fatigue severity scale shows as at baseline that it's severe, moderate to severe, and then after a week they come back and it's half of that. They know that they're sleeping better. But it's not just about the device. It's also looking at um, sleep hygiene. You know, are they uh, on their iPad till right before they go to sleep? Are they eating an hour before they fall asleep? We'll also look at uh, breathing function. So we look at five competences, and we believe that there are five things that every human being should have, and there's good evidence to support the physiology. And one is they need to be able to breathe through their nose, exchange gas through their nose efficiently 90% of the time, very easily with minimal effort. Number two is they need to be able to maintain a lip seal. So they have lips competence with their tongue on the roof of the mouth, which is the third competence. And that's driven by the fifth cranial nerve. The fourth is a non-collapsing pharynx during sleep. And the fifth is diaphragmatic breathing. If any of those competences, things that should happen easily, day to day, moment to moment, are threatened, then you have compensation. And those compensations are what result in the signs and the symptoms that the clinician sees when they come into the office all the things that we list in the uh, airway exam. And so we want to reestablish those competence and kind of unravel the compensation. And then that's how we know that we're uh, are, are successful. We're measuring outcomes that are based on the patient versus the provider outcome. And, and so we document that. And there are any of a number of things you could do from just therapy, from breathing behavior, addressing breathing behavior with a capnometer, to myofunctional therapy, to creating tongue space or oral volume. Can you, can you re-step through the possible remedies and what does that mean? You know, what's myofunctional therapy? Right. So uh, so one of the, the confusions that's out there in our disease management healthcare system is the care is very siloed. And so if you see a surgeon, they do surgery. If you see a, you know, a internist, it's a pharmaceutical intervention. Uh, if you see a therapist, it's just, you know, uh, manipulations or therapy. Uh, and and you're, you're not getting integration of care where people are addressing the three things that are required to have consistent, reliable, predictable outcomes. And it's addressing the structure, the function, and the behavior. So the structure would be, for example, where you have an individual has a cross by high palatal vault, a deviated septum swollen turbinates, they can't breathe through the nose, um, uh, bimaxillary retrusion, their face did not develop enough, they have adenoid faces, as an example. So those are structural risk factors that could be uh, addressed surgically and non-surgically. As far as uh, function, you're going to have compensation. The swallow, how they swallow, how they breathe, where they keep the tongue, are they mouth breathing, are they nose breathing? Uh, so those are functional issues that could be addressed with uh, what's called myofunctional therapy. It's nothing new. Uh, it's something that the rest of the world is ahead of the United States in doing uh, with many studies and a lot of evidence to show that you can repattern the oral posture, the tongue, being on the roof of the mouth, which is where it should be. Quick, quick thing. So I've done probably over 100 interviews of sleep professionals. Yeah. And it took me until literally number 98, 99, 100 to run into three people now that talk about this myofunctional therapy. But yeah. until then, even I never ran into it. And I'm actively looking and interviewing people like you. So I think it's probably pretty rare that anyone gets to the point where they, they're not just say, oh, you need a CPAP. Oh, you need a sleep study. Oh, you need a, a dental appliance to advance your jaw. I mean, you know, I know this is the world you live in and everything, but 
I would guess just based on my experience, which has again been focused in this area lately, is that it's rare that most people will be aware of this and it's rare that most people's doctors will be aware of this. It's just my experience. Right. You know, so I'll just say that the problem is is that in a disease management healthcare system, it's not recognized because they're treating signs and symptoms. So it is nothing mm-hmm. new. And in my world, yes, it's a self-selected population. It's known. People know that this is what they have to do. Brazil has done studies now, a PhD level studies, systematic reviews and meta-analysis and original studies actually showing this. Uh, it's being recognized now uh, by Kristen Gimeno, Kushida uh, at Stanford School of Medicine. Um, there are studies regarding the use of the digiridu to increase the muscle strength in the pharynx that actually repatterns the brain. So it's not just the muscles. It's actually changing the neural connections at the level of the cerebellum that function to give us our respiratory uh, reflexes and um, breathing mechanics. So, um, yeah, that's the problem is, is that people aren't addressing that and they they poo it. Now the evidence is very very strong. Um, And so I'll just say something that I think that's even less understood. So that structure, that function. The third thing is breathing behavior using a capnometer. So that's an issue that every one of these patients has disordered breathing at night. That's why it's called sleep disordered breathing. Also have disordered breathing during the day. So it's how they ventilate. So they're chest breathing. They're not moving the full uh, oral tidal volume. And they're in a chronic state of respiratory alkalosis. So they're blowing off too much CO2. And that stimulates a sympathetic drive. So all these individuals are in this low state of sympathetic drive that's causing a lot of the signs and symptoms. In fact, it's what's making them sick. And they're not aware of it because that's all they know. So anybody who's taken yoga understands how they feel. They feel relaxed. Why do they feel relaxed? Because essentially they've been able to take an hour to pull themselves back into parasympathetic coherence, which is the way every mammal is supposed to function. But as soon as they leave the gym and they stick their keys in the ignition car, they're back into that sympathetic drive, that disordered breathing, because they have this, this uh, respiratory pattern, because they have what's called mm. low-end tidal CO2. And you can measure that with a capnometer. And there's lots of science um, to support its use. And so that's one of the things we also measure is their end tidal CO2 and their breathing pattern. So what, what are you called then? If someone's looking for, you know, someone has sleep problems, they're waking up tired or, you know, any other. What, normally people say, oh, I need a sleep doctor. But is that what you're called? Or how would people even find practitioners like you that look at all these things? Well, I say that disordered sleep is just a symptom. It's treated as its own entity, like type 2 diabetes, treated as its own disease. But it's actually a symptom uh, of which mm. fragmented sleep is a major risk factor. So I would say that I'm addressing breathing problems. People come in with breathing problems of which fragmented sleep is only one of the symptoms. If I have a problem, I think, okay, uh, you know, I can think a couple things. I can think, oh, I'll just go to my primary care doctor and then he'll, he'll help me. And the primary care may say, uh, you need a sleep doctor or uh, maybe you need a pulmonologist or maybe you need uh, ear, nose and throat. You know, how do people identify that they need you? I mean, you know, so you're listed as a DDS, which is a dentist, right? right? Well, right. And so that's why we train uh, dentists. Actually, we train physicians and allied health professionals as well. I work with well-known 
uh, seat physicians, pulmonologists, and ENTs that this is their world and they agree with what, um, you know, what we're teaching, what we're saying, the average physician knows very little about it. They get one hour of sleep science in medical school. So when people come to me, what we as dentists, what we're actually seeing are the signs of disordered breathing and sleep. And so we have to start recognizing, I'm working with the ADA right now. We're we're actually changing the way we think and the way we train and regarding that. So when people come into me, it's how you talk to them about it. I ask questions, we do screenings and we get data and then we put it all together. Um, So now I'm getting people who come in and, and they've seen the ENT and the seat position, the pulmonologist, and the system has failed them. They know they have this problem. They know they don't have Lyme disease. They know they have fatigue and, and this fragmented sleep, and they don't want a CPAP or even an oral appliance. Those are interim uh, management tools. I think it's necessary to manage the problem first. So if someone presents with a femoral artery that's ruptured, you have to put a tourniquet on to save their life. And that's what I see CPAP and oral appliances to do. But eventually, you want to get into definitive care to address the underlying etiology. And that's basically what we train. What could we do to get them off of that and to cure the problem? So medicine can manage and they must manage it. Dentistry can cure it. Okay. No, that's great. So how would you, um, you know, I interrupted you, took you off track on all the things you look at, but, you know, you're also saying them in a technical way. Can we restate the things that you would look at just in the plainest language possible, maybe the language that you would use with a patient. So you may want to say, um, you know, we want to look at the, uh, the size and the dimensions of your airways, your nose and your mouth, et cetera, to see if, you know, that's creating a blockage or, you know, how, how can we restate the things that you will look at? In like, like I said, very plain terms. So usually uh, patients, when they come in at a dental office, they already have signs and symptoms and complaints, whether it's temporomandibular joint dysfunctions or disorders, or they have, Mm -hmm. you know, fractured teeth and lost teeth. So they they have dental um, signs that you know as a trained airway-focused dentist that they're related to their airway function. So your job is to communicate it in a clear, simple way that the patient gets it, and they do. Um, Once you explain it, they do understand that the you know, the teeth are the canaries in the coal mine, so to speak. They're just kind of a, a victim of a bigger problem. And so I always talk to them and address them by saying we have to address, you know, the hardware, the software, and the operating system. So the hardware would be the structure. The software would be the function. And the operating system is the behavior. And behavior is physiology in action. And so uh, they get that. And I'll give you an example. So let's say a patient comes in and how I started uh, connecting these dots many years ago is uh, in my demographic, pretty uh, privileged um, socioeconomic area, educated people. I was blown away as to how many of these patients were on anxiolytics and antidepressants. Why would you be on those medications when life is good? So let me give you an example of how I would talk to a patient about it from a dental point of view. So I have these three different caliber straws, and I would give them a large straw. And I'd say, Mr. Jones, I want you to breathe through this large straw. And while you're breathing through this straw in your mouth, pinching your nose, I want you to imagine that your head is underwater, just under the surface. And I'm going to ask you how you consciously feel as you're breathing from the straw. And my guess is, is that as you're breathing, you're feeling okay, 
you're getting enough air pretty easily. Is that correct? And they shake their head and they say, yeah, I could do that. Okay, maybe it's not a snorkel, but they could breathe well enough and they could imagine it, there's no threat there. So I'll take that away from them and I'll give them that regular straw that you use to uh, suck up a, a malt or a milkshake. And I'll ask them, um, how are you feeling now? Again, breathing through that with your nose pinched underwater. My guess is, is that if you were doing that for a few minutes, you'd start maybe having some anxiety, right? And then I'll mm-hmm. hand them the mm-hmm. little coffee straw and say, well, how do you feel now? They don't even put it in their mouth. They're already anxious just thinking about it. <laughs> so I try to make yeah. the distinction between uh, psychological uh, anxiety and physiologic anxiety. And people conflate the two. They don't make the difference. They think it's their wife. They think it's the traffic. It's their husband. It's the school, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Those are just, that's what we call life. That just exacerbates it. There's language for it. So you can understand that. But the autonomic nervous system or the brainstem does not have language. You just have that, you have that limbic response, that feeling of anxiety. And when you threaten it in any way, it's a survival mechanism. So if you have a small airway, inadequate structure, and the soft tissue compensation, you can imagine how that anxiety that that results in these functional somatic uh, symptoms uh, can result in that. And they understand that intuitively. Oftentimes, they start crying in the chair saying, oh, my God, I knew that's what it was. And so Hmm. our job then is to address the structure and functional issues to where you could predictably get them feeling well. And we do. Uh, CPAP is not going to address that very effectively. The way the physicians are dealing with it is giving them an anxiolytic. They don't recognize the problem for what it is. Um, I could get delve into all the research having to do with the effect of chronic intermittent hypoxia on the brain and how it actually destroys the white matter, causing depression, a high correlation with depression. The same thing with anxiety. Uh, the well-known Australian Deloitte study in 2011 actually showed the effect that it had on those symptoms on the gross national product. So it's a huge economic problem as well. So we could go on and talk about all those uh, correlations. All they're doing is they're treating symptoms. And, and I just say, let's step back and take a more global approach to what's actually happening rather than chasing signs and symptoms. Let's see what's happening with the entire organism from a, a global point of view. And I guess the big point here is that just because someone's a child, you know, 5, 10, 15 years old doesn't mean that they're immune from any of these things. And No, that's when it mm. starts. That's when it starts. In fact, there are studies to show it starts in the third month in utero. And we actually have a fetal and maternal initiative that's actually screening moms during that third trimester uh, because uh, uh, there's a high percentage of those moms that are suffering from sleep disorder breathing that has uh, downstream consequences to the fetus, increased <laughs> risk of preeclampsia, uh, gestational diabetes, um, small for gestational age birth outcomes. That data is already out there. That's where it starts. And then postnatal, <laughs> looking at their uh, swallowing reflex, their primitive reflexes. And, and so we go from that point all the way through. By the time you get into you know, a 20 or 30-year-old, they've already been suffering from this for a long time. It just wasn't uh, recognized for what it was. And the data is super strong. I mean, this isn't anything I'm making up. It's just, it's, it's not being integrated. Oh, so what are some of the um, interventions you've done as examples for people and what was their experience once you did them? Maybe pick a couple of the most common or most deleterious 
things that you've seen and maybe just comment on a couple. Okay. So on one end of the spectrum from the most invasive, um, that someone has moderate to severe sleep apnea, uh, maxillomandibular telescopic orthognathic surgery in combination with myofunctional therapy and uh, breathing repatterning on one end of the scale. Those people are predictably cured from the problem as measured by the gold standard uh, and uh, their, their reported signs and symptoms. It changes their lives. They're, they turn into a different human being, and they'll tell you that. I, I, dozens and dozens, I could tell you the interviews, I could show the outcomes, we measure everything. On the other end of the scale, uh, a nine-month-old, um, I would work with uh, knowledgeable airway-focused sleep and language pathologist that understands the primitive reflexes, the deglutition patterns are manifesting because they can't breathe through their, well, their nose well or because there's lip incompetence. So in between the, what I call the skinny woman syndrome, the 22-year-old college grad that is suffering from uh, mood swings and anxiety and irritable bowel syndrome and TMD and bruxes. Someone like that, the first thing we do is we stabilize sleep and then we address structure, function, and behavior. And it may be that we do orthopedic remodeling to address the mid-face deficiency to, uh, in combination with repatterning the tongue with myofunctional therapy and doing breathing repatterning. So there's so many tools that dentists have at their disposal to address that beyond surgeries, medications, and devices. We're just using surgery, medications, and devices because that's all we know and that's how we were trained. And yet there are all these validated uh, approaches that are very, very effective. And in fact, we go through monthly case reviews. Our, our team does. We have an interdisciplinary team where we go through these case reviews on a regular basis. And we actually teach that. And we, we have um, web-based um, meetings where we train the clinician to present the examination profile and their treatment sequencing. And then we all work as a team from the pulmonologist point of view, from the otolaryngology point of view, from the orthodontic point of view, from the myofunctional therapy, from the physical therapy point of view, from the craniosacral osteopathic point of view, all have a stake in understanding what's going on with the patient. It's not just one person. And that's what makes it difficult. So what happens if, uh, you know, I, I know you can't see everyone in the world. What happens if people are not local to you? Well, I have people flying and driving from uh, all over the country and internationally now. You know, my greatest efforts right now are to train other people. And we actually have a healthcare model called the Be Well Collaborative, where we're setting up these interdisciplinary uh, facilities all over the country, uh, following our specific algorithm where the patient is uh, evaluated by the seat physician, the otolaryngologist, the orthodontist, the restorative dentist, and the therapist. And they could go in, and a lot of it is web-based. So we have telemedicine, telemyo, telebreathing. Uh, we're uh, establishing a teleradiology, so we can actually get data from South Africa or from Malaysia, um, and we can actually... Uh, as a team, look at it and say, okay, here, here's the things that we would do. Um, we're in a digital world, so there's a lot that we could do. Everything's planned digitally as well, um, using cone beam tomography, using uh, digital scanning. Uh, so we have a lot of technology that allows us to really evaluate 
uh, these patients anywhere in the world. And, and just putting the pieces together in, in treatment sequencing is, you know, where the challenge is, depending on what you're, where, where you are, where your wherewithal is. A lot of people will fly in, but I, I, my, my hope is, is that we could do this as a standard of care everywhere. And that's where I see us in the future going right now. It's, it's exploding worldwide. So it's interesting that you say mm. that you've been interviewing a lot of people and you've only heard a few talk about Mayo in my world. Um, I'm connected to a global network that is very where, well aware of this, and there are international conferences looking just at myofunctional therapy. The AASM is one of them, IAOM, the AOMT, and I could give you a lot of organizations, and, and it all comes down to connecting. And so your efforts in interviewing individuals is part of, I think, the the intellectual infrastructure that's going to make it happen. You're connecting people uh, from a lot of different disciplines and understanding to really address what I call knowledge voids. And that's what we have to address right now. The information's out there. It's just getting it all connected and then integrating it. Yeah. I mean, talking to you is like um, speaking to someone that brings up, you know, you brought up all these things that you know, I've only heard a little bit about and a lot of them are new. And you're, it sounds like you're like, of course, there's all these things you can do. And, <laughs> and I'm telling you, most people have no clue about any of these things. You know, they they may not even know what a CPAP is. Right, right. So from your point of view, you're interviewing a lot of people. Um, but you know, if you get into the context of where where we are, I mean, you're you're dancing around um, the mainstream, and the mainstream's kind of missed a lot of because it's all about disease management and and what we teach the first. Mm number of hours we teach is how we think is part of the problem where we get our education gets in the way of our learning. And so, um, you know, we could go through many, many hours of discussions on what the problem is. The problem is really how we see the problem. And um, yeah, I mean, we could spend a lot of time and it is. You know, I don't want to, I mean, again, I'm just one person, one family, but you know, I've been to the dentist. They don't say a word about this. My daughter's been to the orthodontist. Nothing. You know, my wife has been to the dentist. Nothing. My friends, I've never heard any of this from anyone at all. Yeah, there's a big grassroots effort. If you want to look up, you could Google documenting hope as an example. Beth Lambert um, looking at children. Okay. So this is the first generation of kids that's going to not live as long as their parents. We have an entire population in the United States of kids that is sick, not just a little sick, but they're really sick. More autism, more ADD, ADHD, more metabolic dysregulation. So you have to ask the question, what's going on with our species? And ultimately one of the uh, underpinnings of what we teach is that it's our environment since the industrial revolution that is making us sick. So if you look at the data from the World Health Organization worldwide, you're finding that more people worldwide are dying from diseases and, and, and conditions that didn't exist 100 years ago, didn't even exist 50 years ago. They were dying of infections, tuberculosis, dysentery. That's pretty much under control. We're now dying from conditions that we've created in our modern environment that we did not evolve from uh, for eons that we can't cope very well with, from lack of sleep to what we eat to what we breathe. So we can get into the whole topic of epigenetics, but, you know, with the time, it, just mentioning the word, that's really where the problem is. And so it's affecting our kids. 
And so the United States ranks number 50 in the world in its population health, and yet we spend more than twice of any other country. In 2011, we spent $2.7 trillion. It's unsustainable. It's going to take us down. We cannot uh, continue to do what we're doing unless we change our healthcare system in whole. And, and um, I could give you so many references and, and organizations that understand that. Um, and so that's a whole other discussion. So, yeah. No, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, just a couple more questions. You gave an example earlier about, you know, one of the most invasive ways that you may have to intervene to help someone. What are some of the less invasive ways? Maybe like two examples. Oh, myofunctional therapy. You could have uh, a myofunctional therapist that could be a hygienist who's gone through uh, the proper training to a physical therapist who's gone through the proper training uh, to repattern uh, the swallow and the oral posture and foster nasal breathing 90% of the time. Um, but it, it does require work from the patient. It's not a magic pill. You're not going to take a pill a day and you're going to be fine. You actually have to do some work to change what got you sick to begin with, uh, the, the poor sleep and breathing to begin with. Another example would be perhaps craniosacral therapy from an osteopath or craniosacral therapist that addresses uh, those issues that are related to uh, the cranial structures that um, are also uh, potentially uh, a problem. You could do the breathing repatterning with behavioral capnometry, a master's level therapist that understands the physiology and the chemical axis uh, from under-breathing or over-breathing. You know, we all know that overeating is not healthy. Well, over-breathing is also not healthy. It's just as bad. And most of our population is over-breathing. It's what's causing that sympathetic, upregulated uh, drive that leads to adrenal fatigue. That could be repatterned by behavioral capnometry in just a few weeks. What is over-breathing right. or under-breathing, by the way? What's an example of like, how does someone over-breathe or under-breathe? high percentage of our entire population is, is definitely doing that. Um, it, it's kind of like hyperventilating, but it's more nuanced. You, you just don't know you're hyperventilating. So if you had a capnometer, it's what's used in the, e, in the OR to check someone who's under general anesthesia. So medical capnometry is well-validated uh, medical instrumentation looking at end tidal CO2, which is the amount of carbon dioxide reserved in your lungs. And everybody should have a minimum of 35 millimeters of mercury pressure within their lungs. And that could be measured, but a lot don't because they're overventilating. And why that's important is that hemoglobin releases oxygen, the brain or the muscle or the organs as a function of the CO2 gradient. And if you're over-breathing all the time, it's going to cause disordered breathing, and you're going to over-ventilate, and that's going to stimulate the sympathetic drive at the level of the brainstem. Well, you can uh, repattern that with instrumentation and find out from the patient why they have that behavior. It could be that every time they're in an interaction with, let's say, uh, uh, somebody that threatens them, they start you know, becoming fight or flight, sympathetic. And, and every time they're in a situation similar to that, they have this behavior that they're doing that and they don't even know it. And it's eventually making them sick and they think that it's the traffic or their workload, as an example. So they have these triggers that uh, stimulate that overbreathing, And then they try to sleep at night and they can't fall asleep because they have too much norepinephrine or adrenaline in their system. 
And so by the time they fall asleep, the alarm's going off, and then they start the cycle all over again. What do they do? They reach for a Vente Starbucks, and they end up um, waiting till happy hour, and they want to talk themselves off the ledge. How do they do that? With happy hour, a beer, or Chardonnay. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that, but it's a way that they kind of try to chemically get themselves into that sweet spot to feel okay, but they're not well. We have a whole population. That's what's making us sick. Read the book, Robert Sapolsky, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. He's a very well-known neuroendocrinologist that he's read about. He's written a lot about that. He studied baboons for decades in Africa, looking at the stress okay. response. You could read uh, Daniel Lieberman, who wrote uh, The Story of the Human Body. He's a very well-known anthropologist from Harvard. He wrote that book, as well as The Evolution of the Human Head. Uh, talked about exactly the same thing. Breathe Well, Be Well by Robert Freed that talks about how 60% of emergency room visits in large cities are the result of uh, dysfunctional breathing. Um, so there's a lot that's been written about it. It's just that people are going to the primary care physician and they're having their symptom de jour treated with the medication and no one's really looking at the underlying problem. And you know what? There's a, this grassroots effort that a lot of people are getting um, uh, frustrated with the current disease management healthcare system, there's a chemical solution for every symptom. And so we could go on to what the problems with a broken system in disease management is, but you kind of get the meaning of what I'm trying to say here, hopefully. Oh, yeah. I mean, for instance, just for listeners, I did a Google search for myofunctional therapy as I was talking to you just to pull it up, and I see ads interspersed in there. Can't sleep? Take this pill. Can't sleep? This. Yeah, oh, it's everywhere. I understand. I mean, WebMD exactly. and all these things have been invaded by this. It's all over TV and everywhere. I, I totally agree. You know, and it's a, exactly that's a far inferior way than, than finding the root causes and and fixing them. So yeah, I got it. A lot of the population that listens to you, you say they may, they may not know about myofunctional therapy, but they know about the problem that we just described. And I think that's the start. They just don't know where to go. And I think education, like with everything, um, is part of the the big part of the solution. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, this has been great, really, really great interview. Um, Thank if you. people are local to you, you're in what Orange County, California. I'm in Orange County. You, you know, um, you, they could go to uh, markadds.com, and in there, I've got a website uh, tab called Airway Focus Dentistry, um, and on the main website, with uh, literally probably fifty educational videos from a lot of different perspectives. And for me, uh, I'm not necessarily about getting the referrals. I have a very, very busy practice. I'm about getting the word out and educating people like yourself. Um, and mm. I'm going to die and I'm going to be going somewhere else, like my dad would say, to the big molar in the sky at some point in time, <laughs> the problem remains. So if we could leave the place a little bit better than we found by educating, then I think we've done our job. So they could go onto my website to learn more if they want to contact me. The information's there. I'm more than happy, really, to promulgate the uh, this knowledge and really to help, like you, you know, getting out there and doing yeah. our part and trying to help healthier um, U.S. public and beyond. So yeah, no problem. And and if people um, either go to your website, is there a place where they can find practitioners that are trained? as you have been trained or are you not at that point yet? Yeah, I have a whole network okay. of practitioners. Um, I've trained from all over the world um, that's gone through our, our rigorous program and that continue to. Uh, we have a big group coming from Europe and South Africa, 
and and uh, Asia this next fall. So we have people from all over, and I'm happy to to connect. So they can contact us, and I'll try to uh, you know find somebody near them or help them find out where they can go to um, get the the answers that they need. Okay, well, excellent. Well, thank you again for coming. I, I really really appreciate it. It's absolutely my pleasure, and and good luck in everything you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. Oh, no problem. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.